Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Now the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and she considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found a favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know the man? And the angel answered to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshow overshow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. The Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, I appreciate you guys being with us. Um, I'm looking around going, you know, there are other people who chose the sunshine and 77 degree forecast, and that's okay. Uh, but I appreciate you being with us. You know, I was thinking this week, it's a bit surprising when you really think about it, that the world's adopted Christmas as a holiday all around the world, because really it is a Christian holiday. But in some ways, they found a way to extract the Christianness out of it. It's really reshaped what it's all about as far as the way that the world observes it. Our modern observance of Christmas, really, when you think about it, is really just a celebration of optimism. It's got its pretty decor and flashing lights. It's got songs that sing about peace and joy and harmony, which everybody longs for. And it's got the giving of gifts and then gatherings with friends and with family. The world loves it because they view it as a celebration and an expression of optimism as they're stepping into a new year and into an unknown future. It's kind of a way to end the year on a high note, I think, for a lot of people. And that's why they enjoy celebrating Christmas and having something that at the end of the year puts a bow on it. But the Christmas that really we celebrate is not at all about optimism. Really, the Christian celebration and observance of Christmas is really because of desperation. That's what Christmas really is about. That's why Christmas happened in the first place. Humanity was so desperate for a Savior. And it's against this very bleak backdrop that the Son of God would then come to rescue and redeem and ultimately to restore creation. Even today, we observe it still, not necessarily with optimism. We still, we observe Christmas with a sense of desperation, both as we look back to Jesus' first advent and as we look ahead to, forward to, a second advent. 
All of this to say, really, our modern way of celebrating Christmas, it's a, it's a newer trend that's only really been about the last 150 years or so. For much longer than that, some 1,500 years, followers of Jesus from every tradition around the world have set aside the four weeks that lead up to Christmas to celebrate a season of hope-filled anticipation known as Advent. Advent simply means coming or arrival. We steal the word from Latin, from the Latin word Adventus. Advent is the traditional celebration of the first Advent, the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus. And it is the eager expectation of a second Advent that Jesus had promised, that he would arrive, that he would come again. This this is why then we as a church, we pause alongside of millions of other saints, really of billions of other followers of Jesus throughout the ages who have done this very thing to celebrate the season of Advent together. The goal for us really as we come together in celebration is to come together in celebration in, in anticipation of Jesus, our King, who, yes, has come, but is promised to come again in the future. You see, the season of Advent is meant to remind us that all that we hope for, all that we live in tension and waiting for, is found in the one who we long to arrive and free us from the brokenness of our existence and will walk with us into a much brighter future. Advent's meant to let us feel the brokenness and tension of trusting and waiting on a good God while living inside of a broken existence. It's the longing that we're meant to feel that aligns with ancient Israel, awaiting their Messiah who came that first Advent in humility. It's the longing really of all of creation still that's awaiting his return in glory to set things in order to make them right again. So followers of Jesus around the world take four weeks leading up to Christmas to reflect on the world's brokenness and our own personal need for a Savior to intentionally step into the shoes of the Israelites who longed for their Messiah to come and for us to intentionally look forward to, to look ahead to the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right again. You see, observing Advent is an ancient rhythm and practice that followers of Jesus have done for centuries. And it's something that we choose to do as a church because we believe that it makes the arrival of Christmas Day that much more awe-inspiring and meaningful of a celebration for Jesus' people when we wade into the tension of waiting for his arrival. So each week, the church around the globe, they emphasize one of four themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. And although last week we didn't necessarily kick off our Advent series, we did have someone come to teach about the hope of the world, which was the Great Commission, carrying the gospel out to the nations. But today what we do is we talk about peace, and I want to do that by looking at the character in the early story, the the first Christmas story, the character of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So as we do that, let's begin by just observing and agreeing together that we live, if our theme is peace, we really live in a world that's void of peace. And that was true before Jesus at his first advent arrived. That that first century world was a place that was void of peace. That the people were living in unrest. And it's definitely true as we await for Jesus' second coming to judge the world and make it right again. We live in a modern era that still is marred by injustice and war, even in an era where social divides seemingly exist over every area of life. 
I mean, in the last handful of years, I think we've seen society and culture become more divided than ever before. What was initially divides over masks and shots all of a sudden became divides over a donkey or an elephant, over blue lives and black lives, over a right to choice or a right to life. We've seen divides get so intense that we've devolved to the point where we're dividing over even whether or not Taylor Swift's romance with Travis Kelsey is real or just a publicity stunt. All of culture has found that every area where there is a person with a difference of opinion is a new reason to create it and draw a dividing line because now to be disagreed with has been rebranded as being attacked. We live in such a, such a weird moment in history. It's a sad moment in history that we are so divided. And I'm not a prophet, but we're about to roll into an election year. And if I had to guess and forecast, I'd assume that we haven't seen the last of it, that we'll see even more of it. We live in tension, waiting for peace, longing for peace. I think it's one of the beautiful things we get to experience in the family of God now as we wait in that tension, is that we can experience unity and peace here. But think back to the first world or the first century world that Jesus would arrive into because it wasn't that far removed from our world. God's people had waited thousands of years for God to fulfill his promise given to the first humans that he created and who rebelled against him. God's people waited 400 years since the last time that God had spoken to them through a prophet to give them again another piece of the puzzle or point them again to that glimmer of hope. But then the focus of Scripture shifts from this broad lens that shows a nation in peril and an oppression whose hope was waning while waiting in silence and darkness for their God to finally show up as he had promised. It goes from that look to zooming in and being micro-focused, laser-focused on a young teenager, a young girl coming out of obscurity whose name was Mary. And it was a few weeks ago that we discussed the moment where Mary arrives to find her son Jesus fastened to a cross, being mocked and scorned by those that gathered on that day. But I don't know for you, but for me, as we considered Mary then, my mind also went back to the first introduction to Mary, her first moments in the pages of Scripture, where we're introduced not to a heartbroken mother, but to a bewildered teenager. Remember that Mary might be world famous to us in a modern era, but she was anything but that in the first century context she lived in. Mary was really, by definition, just an insignificant teenager from an obscure village living under occupation as a member of a defeated and suppressed nation who would then become a refugee needing to flee her homeland. Mary was anything but a famous individual. And yet an angel shows up before her saying, it was just read to you in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you and blessed are you among women. But Mary's not a fool. She knows what this means for her. It's not necessarily a death sentence that the angel brings, but she does know it could be. She does know at the very least it's social suicide. For her to yield to the plan of God only armed with the explanation that you are unlike any other woman who's ever walked the face of the earth and that you are the only woman who's all of a sudden pregnant with no explanation and claiming that no man has even touched you. I mean, if you were in her shoes, if we were, we might have clapped back at the angel and said, absolutely not. 
Because I know what you're asking me to sign up for. I might not know all the details, but I know for me what it means. It means public shame and ridicule. There's no guarantee of how this story plays out for her. Some of us, we would have clapped back at God and said, come on, is this, is this what it looks like to have found favor in your eyes because you say that I'm highly favored? Is this what the blessing of God is meant to feel like because this is what you're calling me? You're calling me the blessed, and yet, this is what you're signing me up for? None of us could look back and accuse Mary of just closing her eyes in this moment and embracing blind faith because it tells you with clarity that the angel's statement left her troubled, it says in verse 29, and considering, or maybe your Bible at words it, wondering about these things. That word consider or wonder is a Greek accounting term. It means to make an audit. That as she hears what the angel's saying to her, She's processing it, and like a good accountant, she's auditing all of the documentation, thinking it through and the implications of what's being said to her. Oh, don't read the story and think, oh, these cute little archaic people who are so naive and quick to believe and and move forward. If it was a modern person who had a real brain attached to him, we'd think different. Don't think that, because the text unsurprisingly tells us that she responded as any of us would have by thinking and weighing the reality of what this angel is reporting to her, weighing it out and processing it. However, what does leave us shocked is that it's the faith that she then embraces in, in the reality of uncertainty that she's being told and spoken of. That's what's so amazing, is that after auditing these things and assessing it, that she still steps forward in faith. And that's when you hear her sing the hit 1970s Beatles song, Let It Be, where she finishes with that statement. Well, I'm just a servant, and you are God in heaven, so let it be as you say. Quoting author Daniel Darling in his book, The The Characters of Christmas, he said, let's consider what Mary was signing up for. Mary was saying yes to bearing the shame of an unwed pregnancy at a time when this carried incredible social stigma. Would her friends and family believe her claims to have been visited by the Holy Spirit? Would Joseph stay or put her away? We know the end of the story, but Mary did not. Mary was saying yes to raising the Son of God. It's hard enough to raise a fallen child, but imagine the burden of raising Jesus. For Mary, the responsibility of caring for this most important child would be staggering. Mary was saying yes to a lifetime of roller coaster emotions. She'd see him feed the multitudes, raise people from the dead, and walk on water. But she'd also see him mocked, jeered, and taunted, even at times by those who were of his own family and, and hometown friends. Mary would have to hold him close and would have to let him go. She'd feed him and clothe him and rock him to sleep, and yet she'd see him push away and grow into manhood. Every parent's nightmare is to see their child suffer, and Mary lives this in the most acute and agonizing way possible. So this is what Mary is saying yes to. And yet she said yes. You know, we can put the annual question to bed finally of Mary, did you know? Because she did know. The angel told her. She knew what the angel said, that the the miracle child that she bore would become king over his people and that he would reign forever. She knew if if she was aware of the prophecy of Isaiah that this was was a distant echo of, of what Isaiah had promised, that there would be one who'd be called mighty God who would come and be given 
Remember, a child being born is unremarkable, but a son being miraculously given, that's what we're seeing here. Children are born every day, but none are miraculously conceived until this moment. If Mary knew the scriptures, this, that, that ancient prophecy of Isaiah would have rang true in her mind as the angel reiterates it here, demonstrating that this was the long-awaited Savior, saying here that they would be calling him Mighty God. I mean, can I ask you, would you say yes to Jesus? Or maybe in your own life today, will you say yes to Jesus? Will you, like Mary, hold onto your own dreams with an open hand, knowing that saying yes to Jesus, it might cost you those dreams? Will you embrace faith in the one that loved you enough to become breakable and broken for you? Maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with the claims of Christmas and the promise of peace to those who receive it. May I tell you first that you're in good company because even Mary in this moment, she's wrestling through this. But may I also tell you that you too can overcome that doubt today and, and cease from wrestling and experience the peace that the angels pronounce. Because you remember in the next chapter, these angels show up to a bunch of shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace is promised to those who receive the favor of God. And there's one author, he rightly observed that some doubt seeks answers and some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. You see, there's no heavenly disapproval here in this moment of Mary's doubt that she takes into account all that she's hearing and even begins to ask a question. And yet the same cannot be said about the story of Zechariah and his response to the angel's message to him regarding the birth announcement of John the Baptist in the preceding section that begins Luke's gospel. In his story, his skeptical excuses and dismissing comments for how and why the miracle could not happen, it literally left him speechless, you remember in the story. Oh, which kind of doubt do you carry in with you today? About Christmas for sure, or the gospel in general, or even about God's goodness and faithfulness to your family today? What kind of doubt do you wrestle with today? Is it the kind that's just dismissing God's capability? Or is it the one that right now is wrestling for greater faith? You know, it's really fascinating to me as I was considering Mary this week that Luke's gospel gives us all of these details into this early interaction between Mary and this angel that you don't find anywhere else in Scripture. It's interesting because Luke is the only gospel writer who was not really a first-hand eyewitness of the things that are written in his account. In fact, Luke begins his gospel account by making the statement that the way that he compiled his gospel of the life of Jesus, the, the, the writing, this really a biography of Jesus, the way that he'd do it is that he would go to firsthand eyewitnesses and he would interview them and then turn it into this gospel account that he makes available. So many modern scholars, because of that, believe that Luke sought audience and gained it with Mary herself. And that's how he gets the information that you're reading here, not just of the play-by-play -play of what happened, but even the tension that Mary felt in this moment, that she was the one who self-reported that, yes, in that moment, I stopped and audited all of this. I stopped and reasoned through what was being said. You see, in this moment, Mary's clear that her faith was not instantaneous. You should go, or you could go so far as to say that really her faith, it developed in stages. And I'd say that many of us would attest to the same thing when it comes to our own faith in God. It wasn't just instantaneous, like a light switch flicked on. 
but it was a process that took place. In the story, you notice the first step, her first response was to do some measured accounting. That's what her faith's first form looked like. She took the first step and it looked for her like measured accounting. She took it all in, all that she's hearing, and began to consider the heavenly claims that were set before her. The first time Mary heard the heavenly plan of God becoming a man to rescue mankind, she responded and said, verse 34, how can this be? I actually think that this is a good way or maybe a good sign if this is how you first responded when you heard the gospel, when you heard heaven's plan to send God himself to rescue humanity. Honestly, I really hope that this is a part of your response to the gospel. Because at some point in time, if you haven't found the message of Christmas, the gospel, to be too incredible and amazing and outright shocking, then I'd question if you've ever really considered and really ever truly understood it, because it is shocking. It is seemingly unthinkable that this is how God's plan would play out, that heaven had a plan from eternity past to have God come and rescue humanity. In his book, Hidden Christmas, author Timothy Keller said it this way. He said, Christianity may have never been unfamiliar to you. In other words, he's saying, you might have grown up in a Christian household and in the church, familiar with the story, but listen to what he says. Christianity may have never been unfamiliar to you, but if you have never stood and looked at the gospel and found it ridiculous, impossible, inconceivable, then I don't think that you've really understood it. You see, for every one of us as Jesus followers, I'd venture to say that we've probably all had a moment in time like this where we've stepped back and said, there's just no way. It's like our, our parents taught us as we were young children. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And there's nothing more amazing that does sound too good to be true than the gospel of Jesus. But Mary doesn't stop with mere measured accounting of what she's being told. She asks for more information. If God is saying this, then how will he do it? Verse 34 again, she says, how can this be? You see, Mary has a second, a second step forward in faith that was in this moment, a, a willingness to simply accept it. It was simple acceptance. Look at what the story tells you in verse 34, where it says that Mary then said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Listen, please. The angel's responding to her question of how can this be with saying that the power of God doesn't share your limitations, Mary. That's how it will be. Therefore, also, the Holy One who's to be born will be called the Son of God, the angel says. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What began for Mary as some measured accounting has grown as we now see Mary's second step forward in faith is simple acceptance where she says, Behold your maidservant, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It goes without saying here that Mary doesn't know everything, that she didn't understand all that was being put before her, that she's like each one of us, someone who's seemingly prone to doubt or to worry or fear. But in that moment, and as a pattern of life going forward, Mary would cling to what she did know. And what she knew was, I'm just a servant. 
I know my place in relationship with God. And you alone are God. So I'll trust what heaven's telling me. So let it be according to your word. Please hear me remind you today that the power of faith is not connected to the quantity or the quality of it. It's connected to the object of your faith. I'll say that again. The power of faith is not necessarily connected to the quantity or the quality of faith, but to the object of your faith. And there's nothing in the story that leaves us with the impression that Mary in this moment has this tremendous amount of faith. We're instead only able to be certain that the object of her faith was God himself, was a God that she believed to be faithful to what he had promised centuries before, a God who'd be faithful to uphold what he's saying in this moment as heaven's messenger stood before her. You see, the power of faith is about the object of your faith, not the quantity or quality of it. And forgive me because I've used this illustration before, but it's very fitting. Uh, earlier this year, I went, because uh, who doesn't want to celebrate their birthday by jumping out of an airplane, and I went skydiving with a friend. And, and there's a tendency when you jump out of an airplane, just like if you fall at any height or distance, is to reach out to try to grab something to hang on to for security. And so typically what people do, because you can't find anything outside of yourself, is you'll just grab onto something that, that's a part of what you're wearing. You'll grab onto your own shirt or to the harness you're attached to. However, you'd have to agree that the, the quantity or quality of your faith in that moment, in what you're hanging on to, especially if it's the strap that you're hanging on to that's attached to a parachute, it really does nothing. It does nothing because the object of your faith is foolish. If I'm hanging on to my shirt or hanging on to the strap of this pack, it, it does absolutely nothing because that can't save me. I can fall thousands of feet to my death, regardless of how confident I am or how strong my grip is on this inanimate object. It can't do what I need it to do. It can't rescue me. The real object of my faith when I jumped out of a plane was the guy that I was strapped to who smelled like weed and B.O. And the parachute that I'm hoping that he packed with more meticulous care than he gave to his own personal hygiene. You see, faith is only as good as its object. It's, it's less limited by what quantity or quality you have as long as the object of your faith is good. Like you falling off the edge of a cliff and grasping at the root of a tree as you tumble down, uncertain of what will come of you, but you grab onto the root of that tree. The power of that faith to save you is not based upon the quantity or quality of it. It's not based upon how firmly you grasp the root nor how confident you hang there in its ability to hold you. The power of faith is based on the object of your faith. What matters most in that moment as you hang there is not what you think of the root or even how tightly you hold on to it. What saves you is the actual strength of the root, the actual strength of the object of your faith. If the root doesn't have the power to hold you, then it doesn't matter how tightly you hold it, you'll fall with it. Oh, but if the object of your faith is good, oh, then your life will be saved. Do you remember the story of the man who came to Jesus and he's begging Jesus to intervene and to rescue his son who's being plagued by all sorts of evil? And Jesus told him, everything is possible for him who believes. And that's where this broken father just mutters, such a simple statement where he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus, in that moment, he responds and heals the boy in that very moment. Apparently, that's what faith is. 
Faith is what Jesus was saying he was looking for. Faith was that broken, frail little utterance off a father's lips of, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Even if its quality is imperfect, even if its quantity is small, it's the object of his faith that mattered. And he looked at Jesus and says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. My friends, your faith may be imperfect, but what matters most is the object of your faith, not its quantity or quality. So say to Jesus today what that man said, Jesus, I believe, but please help me with my unbelief. Say what Mary said. How can this be, she said. But if you're God, I believe that you can make it come to pass. So let it be as you say. You see, faith begins with reason, but faith requires an action. It requires a response. Oh, are you willing to trust your unknown future into the hands of your known God? Because that's the tension that we find Mary in here. But her faith continues to move forward. What began with some measured accounting has grown into simple acceptance of what God has said, but we then find it becoming more than an intellectual process or a sense of duty that she might feel. Mary's faith becomes a heartfelt embrace and celebration of the goodness of God. You see, faith may change. I should probably say it. Faith may not change our external reality. I mean, it may change some of it. Our faith, it changes our standing with God. But it does not place God as our subservient, where now he owes us and functions as my debtor or as a genie in a bottle who has to fulfill my every will. My faith doesn't change every bit of my external reality. However, my faith always changes and transforms my inward reality because it changes and reshapes me as a person. Look at how things have changed for Mary. In the very next story that Luke records for us, Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth that the angel had told her had become pregnant through miraculous means. She's in her final trimester of pregnancy, carrying John the Baptist in her womb. And in that moment, as Mary arrives to see her, the Holy Spirit gives Elizabeth this supernatural knowledge, both regarding Mary's pregnancy and the uniqueness of the child that she bears. That moment gives Mary an even deeper assurance of her faith as her supernatural pregnancy is clearly being seen and testified of prophetically by her cousin Elizabeth. And her faith is solidified as she even looks across from herself to see God's miraculous power at work in the life of her older cousin Elizabeth, who was barren and is far past the age uh, where she would be able to bear a child. And yet there she stood pregnant before Mary, just as the angel had said. God gave Mary this gift to help solidify her faith in what God had promised to do. And in that moment, it's really beautiful, Mary's heart is overcome. And so what comes off of her lips is praise. Mary's words are recorded for us and they become a song that the church throughout the ages has sung and recited, referring to it as Mary's Magnificat. Here's what it says, Luke chapter 1, you can follow along, begin in verse 46. And Mary, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. Hear what she's saying here. 
in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. There are echoes from the Old Testament song of Hannah, the mother of the ancient prophet Samuel and Mary's song here, where you'll notice if you look at what Hannah cries out in thanksgiving for the miracle child that she was able to bear, you'll notice that Mary, she utters these same things, seemingly having those scriptures known and dear to her own heart. And there is this deep theological truth also that comes off of Mary's lips and out of her heart, a confidence in God's faithfulness to humble those who are oppressing his people and to bring justice to the oppressed by lifting them up. And she is seeing this pregnancy as God doing that very thing of God reversing the order of the system of our world, of God bringing the proud to nothing and God elevating the humble to a place of honor. You know, I made my way through a book this week, a wonderful book by Dr. Amy Orr Ewing entitled Mary's Voice. Um, it's actually, it's, it's written as an Advent series of daily reflections, but I enjoyed it so much I made my way, I cheated and broke all the Advent rules and made my way all the way through it. But I so thoroughly enjoyed spending time this week considering Mary's role in the Christmas story. It's a great book that I'd highly recommend. But the author pointed out that Mary isn't just identifying with Hannah in this moment, the mother of Samuel from the Old Testament, because of God's provision of a miraculous son. In this moment, Mary also reaches even further back in time to touch the hand of Eve that had clutched the forbidden fruit in the garden. You see, Mary is delivering hope and peace to the woman who once stood in the glories of Eden by being the one who'd emerged from humble poverty to birth the Savior of the world. You see, in a sense, Mary would stand with Eve, pregnant with the one whom the Scriptures would call the last Adam. For just as humanity's hope and joy and peace was lost with the first Adam's rebellion in the garden, Mary would birth the final Adam, through whom humanity's hope and joy and peace would be restored as he'd pass through the Garden of Gethsemane, choosing to drink deeply of the cup of suffering that was coming. Oh, in that moment when our hope and peace is being restored at the cross, Mary would no longer feel as though she stood with Eve. She'd now feel as though she's standing hand in hand with Sarah from the book of Genesis. Sarah, who watched her husband Abraham walk away with her son, who carried the wood for the sacrifice on his own back to the place atop a distant mountain where they'd offer a sacrifice to God. The very same mount that Jesus would walk walk to with his own father, carrying his own wood on his back for his sacrifice that he would make. As God had prophetically said back in Genesis 22, God would provide himself an offering. And there would be Jesus doing that very thing. See, here's what I want you to hear today. It's that Mary's faith really was a process of doubt and contemplation, of acceptance and of assurance. And I say that because her faith settled deep in her heart, plunging roots deep into her soul and springing out in this beautiful worship and thanksgiving. That happened when the love and faithfulness of God was demonstrated to her. 
As that baby bump began to show her confidence, it grew. And as she stood across from her cousin Elizabeth and saw that the impossible thing had happened, that she too was pregnant, an old woman who had always been barren, and hearing Elizabeth greet her with these prophetic words saying that God by his spirit is showing me that this one is unlike any other child before. You see, there's a moment in time where God would demonstrate to Mary that he in fact, he in fact was faithful and trustworthy. And for us, we have the same thing. For us, the love and faithfulness of God, it was demonstrated to an even greater degree for us to see. The Bible says it this way in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we don't look around or even look down at our own lives for proof for our faith. We confidently look back to the cross of Christ, a moment in history, not just Christ's birth, but his reason for coming, his reason for being born, a death and a resurrection. That is where the confidence of our faith is found. That is where the roots of our trust and peace run deep. Because maybe you're here today wrestling with the claims of Christmas or the claims of the gospel and the promise of peace that's given to those who will receive it. Well, then hear today that our peace is not found in a thing, nor is it found in the accumulation of things or of money or the accumulation of power. If it was found in that, if your peace was found in those things, then our experience of peace would be as on and off as the market is up and down. For many people, their peace is connected to power and control that they, ha- that they hold. But that, that which gives them a sense of security is taken from them. When they lose their power and control, their peace, it vanishes with it. But our peace is not found in a thing or an object or the amassment of any number of things. It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus. You can close your Bible. It being the second Sunday of Advent, we're considering Jesus who is our peace. Listen to the familiar words of the prophet Isaiah, who said in chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. The zeal, the the passionate, fervent desire of the Lord of hosts will surely perform this. Isaiah said that when Almighty God, who is our everlasting Father, when He arrives here to establish peace, peace within creation once and for all, that His reign would bring peace with no end, where He would make everything that's gone wrong and is wrong, that He'd make it right again, when He heals all that's broken in our world. And this is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was the announcement of the arrival of peace. This is why the shepherds heard the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom God's favor rests upon. See, the New Testament, it explains to us that the glory of God came down among us, that God, I love how John says it, moved into the neighborhood and we beheld his glory. And when he did, 
He did it to leave more than an example for us. He did it to leave us with a substitute and Savior who could establish peace between God and man once again. Listen, if you're here or listening and you're an observer of Christianity, then please hear me say that Jesus did not merely come here as an example for you. If he were merely that, he'd crush you. No, he came as a substitute and sacrifice to save you. You see, the Christian message really is terribly offensive in that the gospel tells me that I'm far worse than I'd imagined and yet simultaneously tells me that I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed, that I'm sinful enough that Jesus needed to come to be born and to die while being simultaneously loved enough that Jesus was willing to come, be born and die. The gospel, you see, it completely levels the playing field where we are all the same, all deserving of judgment, all requiring a substitute, all in need of grace, and all being offered the gift of heaven's grace. So what's the answer? What does creation need? What does society need? What does a person need? The answer is not a what, it's a who. I love how Paul says it to the church in Ephesus where he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, for Jesus himself is our peace. Because of Jesus, our Prince of Peace, we do not merely die in peace. We are invited to live with him and experience peace in the here and now. Remember, the purpose of this season is to turn our minds to what happened in the first coming of Jesus and at the same time to awaken our hearts to the hope of what will happen when Jesus comes again. Or remember at Jesus' first advent, he did not come to bring justice but to bear it. He did not come with a sword in his hand, but with an open hand so that spikes could be driven into those hands. Oh, take comfort today in knowing the love of God for you and that being the way that he come. But also take comfort in knowing today that there's a second advent that's promised where he comes to judge the world and make it right again. See, a day of reckoning is coming. A judgment day is coming. And knowing that allows us to live with hope and grace and peace. It allows us, a judgment day allows us to live in hope, knowing that the world will be made right again one day. It allows us to live with grace, knowing that we are not the final judge, nor required to enact justice in every situation with our own hands, because God will do that in his time, allowing us to be gracious and patient with those around us. Oh, but it also enables us to live with great peace because we know that he did not abandon us in the greatest of trials or storms. The storm of God's eternal justice and wrath. Then if that's true, that he did not abandon us, but he came to us born as a baby boy to live and to die for us. If he didn't abandon us in that, then we can face each little storm in our lives with the confidence that he will always be by our side and never abandon us. It was Jesus' own words that he said to his friends that I'll quote to you as we close. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. Today, Jesus, we turn to the one who, yes, came in humility, so vulnerable, God, so loving that you would come. 
but we also turn to the one who will one day pronounce, behold, I make all things new again. Jesus, we look to you, the one in whom our hope rests upon. Jesus, the one whom we see as our peace. Jesus, we long for the day where you take us back to Eden, where wrongs are made right, where tears are wiped away, where everything sad becomes untrue. We live in a world that's still marred and broken, longing for peace without seeing it on the horizon. But Jesus, we see the one who comes as a conquering king. And so Jesus, today, give us peace as we look at our world and our future. But also give us peace as we look at each storm that we face, each trial that we're up against today. That we'd face it with hope and peace, knowing that you did not abandon us, but you left heaven to be with us and to rescue us. Jesus, place peace in hearts today around the globe of your people who are remembering today the great gift of the Prince of Peace. And so, Jesus, we thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.